patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. You touched upon some of those critical countries, uh, North Korea, Russia, China, the big one, which I, I wholeheartedly agree with. And and I, I'm really excited that we're going to have more guests on to speak about that th- threat from China. And uh, we've had already a, a few guests who can speak about uh, what the United Front is doing uh, and what it's it goes beyond, I would say, also beyond just the standard intelligence agencies. Uh, it's not just the Ministry of State Security or the Ministry of Public Security in China. The United Front is doing a lot of, of operations on trying to change people's minds, on trying to influence. It'll, it'll be interesting to see how that scope also will widen um, in terms of the counterintelligence field. But I want to focus on a bit more on one element, which I think is one particular tool that countries like China are using. And it's something that you mentioned a while ago, Jim, I believe it was in an, maybe it was in an article of some kind from the Bush School, but you spoke a bit about LinkedIn as a tool, which is so familiar to countless people, countless people who want to just just get to know a professional or get to get to message someone and get receive content information. And yet something like that can be used as a weapon to steal intelligence. What can you tell us about what why LinkedIn can be weaponized by countries like China and what what this broadly means for the the threat landscape that we're facing today? Well, as a counterintelligence professional, I hate LinkedIn. I hate all the social media because you're exactly right. The Chinese, in particular, are mining. The social media. They have people sitting back in China full time going through all these postings. What do you see on LinkedIn? You see U.S. citizens who are seeking new employment in many cases, or they're bragging about their resumes. They talk about the clearances that they had, the government work that they've done. They're trying to entice people to employ them either because they're retiring or they want to make a career change. That is a candy store for the Chinese in terms of targeting because they go through all those postings on LinkedIn and they find a lot of really good targets there. People who served in the United States military, people who worked in a high-tech company, people who worked in the national laboratories, people who even worked in the intelligence community. And you know what else also they find, Sherman? They find a lot of Chinese Americans, ethnic Chinese who are in the market for new employment. And these people have acquired citizenship and they, in many cases, have had sensitive jobs. And that is a red flag to the Chinese targeters. And so they will play the ethnic card first and foremost. If they see, for example, a Chinese American engineer say from a Boeing or a Lockheed Martin, who's worked on government contracts and for whatever reason is now moving to a new job. 
but posts all of his background or her background on that site, the Chinese will respond. And they do it in a very innocent sounding way, very innocuous reply. We saw your posting on LinkedIn, and we think your background could be valuable to our institute or to our university. And of course, they make it sound as if everything's going to be above board. It's going to be uh, in no way uh, tapping into their classified access. But everybody knows what's going on. And what they try to do is to lure those people to go over to China for an interview. They ask them to provide a, a guest lecture at one of these prestigious universities or institutes or think tanks. And of course, when they get them over there, they hold out the opportunity of some kind of a consulting relationship. They make it clear that it will be very lucrative. They wine them, they dine them, they size them up. They're looking for people who might cut a few corners. And little by little, and too often, in too many cases, they're able to bring these people along to the point where they are betraying information that they shouldn't be. Their objective, of course, is to recruit them and to send them back into the United States uh, in positions of access where they then can provide uh, classified technology or information to the Chinese intelligence service. It's an insidious process. And so many people have been victimized by that uh, because the money is uh, dangled in front of them. Uh, they go after professors. They go after Chinese students who have graduated, who have acquired their citizenship, and who have jobs where they have access to government contracts. They go after companies that have proprietary technology, that even have uh, export control technology. They want that. Uh, they want things that they can't get openly. And this is one mechanism that they use. So uh, if you post on LinkedIn, I can guarantee you some someone in China is reading that and sizing you up as a potential asset. Now, if I were in charge of counterintelligence, I would be dangling an awful lot of prospects to the Chinese, ones that we control, and then sting them with them after they move forward. Uh, I would I would double them in that process. And uh, as you probably know from, from my teaching, I am a strong advocate of double agent operations. That's one of the tools that I'd like to see us be using much more extensively, much more aggressively against the Chinese. This is very well said, Jim. And I, I hope that for those of you listening to, to take note of how sophisticated our threat landscape is, as Jim noted, and there, there's so much that has evolved and for us to be able to, we can't, we can't be catching up and this kind of, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the 10 commandments of counterintelligence a bit later, but um, we, we can't, we have to be proactive and this idea that we can just allow this to happen and not be able to come up with a strategy that is able to beat others at their game. You can't beat someone at their game if you're still learning the rules. And this is this is an area that I hope policymakers and and others in the IC will note. And and Jim, I want to now turn to just an overview of some of the things that you would like to see change, whether it's the whether it's strategy led by the federal government or recruitment practices um, or operations. What what sort of 
element, what sort of things should our country be considering as we not only think about the current generation of in, of, intel, of intelligence officers, but thinking about the next generations and the, and, and the next threats, including cyber, cyber, which obviously will be much more advanced or AI or more advanced technologies that will come about uh, and things that we should be looking for as we look to protect our country even more from these threats. First thing we have to do, Sherman, is to upgrade our counterintelligence resources. We need to recruit more people, particularly in the cyber area. We're losing the cyber wars, and that's unacceptable. We should be leading the cyber conflict, but we're not. We're being overwhelmed by Chinese hackers. And they're very sophisticated. They're very good at what they do. And there's no excuse for that because we have the brightest computer minds in the world here in the United States. Uh, we ought to be recruiting our young people to go into not only defensive cyber, protecting our databases, but also offensive cyber. We should be doing to them even worse than they're doing to us. So I would like to see a major upgrade in our defensive and offensive cyber capabilities. I also believe that counterintelligence has become too defensive. I believe that we're in too many cases kind of hunkering down in a defensive protective mode. You know, fences, uh, code words, uh, all the kinds of things, safes, that kind of thing uh, to protect our secrets. That's not how we're losing our secrets. We're losing our secrets because uh, Americans are betraying us. And so we need to be more offensive. Now, if you get into the Ten Commandments of Counterintelligence, you'll realize that the first one is be offensive. Uh, so we need to hit them. We need to go after them aggressively. We can't just sit back and defend ourselves. We need to go on the attack. And I mean by, first of all, recruiting their intelligence officers. You heard me say this over and over again in class, the best counterintelligence is penetration. We've got to recruit foreign intelligence officers because for every American spy, every American traitor, there is someone in that foreign intelligence service who knows that person's identity. And if we can recruit that person, then we will learn who these people are. Almost every major case that we have broken has a source, a penetration in it somewhere, either to identify the spy outright or to put us in the right direction for our investigation. I would like to see bounties placed on the heads of foreign intelligence officers. And all of us in the human, human intelligence business should be tasked as our number one objective to recruit foreign intelligence officers. Go get them. Get in their face. Uh, Cold pitch them if necessary. Uh, spread the word far and wide. U.S. counterintelligence is open for business. We are aggressive. We have deep pockets. And if you can give us information that identifies American spies, your financial security will be assured. We should post that. We should advertise. We should hang out the shingle, as I call it. The second thing we need to do in terms of offensive counterintelligence is the double agent operation. We need to be much more creative in the kinds of double agent operations that we generate. Uh, we need to hit them very, very hard. 
in ways that they want to expect. We want to put them on notice that the next American that they think they recruit, the next American engineer, the next American government official, the next American military officer, the next American spy may be ours, may be working for us, may be doubled against you. Uh, so we want to make them gun, gun shot because they're hungry. They're greedy. The Chinese will grab it. Uh, all we've got to do is uh, dress it up, uh, float it past them, and they will seize it, and then we will have a double agent operation. Uh, double agent operations are a lot of fun. You're pitting your wits against the best minds in foreign intelligence services. I love them. Uh, they are intellectually stimulating. Uh, they're delicate, very subtle, but all the more reason to uh, really sink your teeth into them. I love double agent operations, and I'm afraid, even though I'm out, I have reason to believe that the art of double agentry is uh, not where it used to be or should be. Absolutely, Jim. I, I would also just add, uh, I would love to see more humans in general. I mean, it seems like so many people feel that because of the change in technology that somehow we're not going to have to rely on human beings for a lot of things. Well, I don't think that's, I don't, I don't entirely agree with that. I think that when human beings get, get to know one another, when you see how in history we've learned about how people made connections for good reasons and nefarious reasons, that's still key element. Well, thank you for making, thank you for making that point to Sherman. I want the record to show I did not coach you. I did not ask you to make that point, but as a human or myself, I am absolutely certain that there's no substitute for good human, a good human source, a good penetration. The technology is good. It's invaluable in many ways. I love our signals intelligence. I love our imagery intelligence, but there never will be a substitute for someone sitting inside the adversary and able to tell us about their intentions, their plans, and to pass us the uh, really important uh, material. Human is alive and well. It's not going anywhere. so all you humaners out there, don't despair. Your future is bright. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, that's it's a phenomenal transition, I believe, Jim, to uh, to speak a bit briefly about the Ten Commandments. And obviously, people will, will learn more about them when they read your books, which we will speak about in in just a few minutes. But I like to focus on uh, we spoke about the first one to be offensive. I like to focus on the tenth one here. Never give up. Yes. That's important. It may be the second most important of the Ten Commandments. Counterintelligence is sometimes very slow. If you want instant gratification, counterintelligence is not for you. Because you've got to unravel this web that a foreign intelligence service has created. You've got to uncover a spy who is working very hard to conceal his or her tracks. And quite often, you only have a little piece, a little nugget. Something's leaking somewhere. Or you have some information from a source that they are receiving information in this area. That's not a lot to go on because it can cover a wide range of, of people and organizations. But the important thing is to stay with it. You know, counterintelligence is like a jigsaw puzzle. And you've got one piece, and you put that on the table, and that's your starting point. 
And it may take you a long time, maybe from an intercept, maybe from a source who's got partial information, maybe from a surveillance exercise where you get another piece. And you still don't have much of a picture. But if you stick with it, you will be rewarded because little by little, a good counterintelligence officer will put it together. And a good counterintelligence officer will tell you, as I will tell you, that you will, if you stick with it, if you never give up, you will have that unforgettable, what I call, eureka moment. When you suddenly realize, that's it. That's the last piece. I now know who the spy is. I'm going to bring this traitor to justice. It's unforgettable. It's the reason we do counterintelligence. But I, I, I know of cases that have been worked for 20 years before we finally get the last piece that we need to convict a spy. Uh, but if you give up, uh, it's going to be gone forever. So you, you, a, a good counterintelligence officer will never give up. In on my book, uh, To Catch a Spy, I think I add that if counterintelligence were ever to have a model, it should be a bulldog, a pit bull, because you sink your teeth into it and you never let go. You never let go. You shake it, shake it, shake it. You stay with it. You never give up. And uh, eventually you'll, you'll, uh, you'll carry the day. So, yeah, that's very, very important. Uh, Rick Ames took us, took us uh, nine years. Uh, now, there's no excuse for that. It should not have been that long. Uh, Anna Montes was 20 years in place before we finally got onto it. Uh, look at the Conrad case. Uh, one of the case studies in my book, uh, that was a case that started with just a very fragmentary report from a GRU officer stationed in Hungary, liaison to the Hungarian military intelligence, that documents were showing up in Hungary that were being passed to Russia from inside the U.S. military, probably from inside Germany. And that was the beginning of the Conrad investigation. And there was a case study in hard counterintelligence work. I mean, we had little pieces of who this person was, what kind of access this person had. But can you imagine the job, Sherman, if you're a counterintelligence officer in the United States Army, in INSCOM, in the 66th Military Intelligence Brigade? Your job is to go to the office every morning, and every morning they bring you an, a foot-high stack of personnel files. And your job is to go through each of those files, look any clues that might relate to this information we have about this training. And then once you, you finish one file, you got another. You do that all day long, you come up with nothing. You go home at night, you really don't feel you've accomplished anything. You go into the office the next day, another stack of personnel files. So I really admire counterintelligence professionals because perseverance and diligence and hard work and commitment and dedication uh, are staples of their trade. What an amazing history that counterintelligence has had going back to the times of George Washington. And ima imagine how big of an impact that is when you learn the history and the stories of not of the 
of the good and the bad. Obviously, thinking about those counterintelligence professionals who work diligently to to catch a spy, which conveniently is the title of of one of your books, Jim. <laughs> um, it wasn't on purpose. Name yes, of the game. That's right. Name of the game. That's right. Uh, our job is to catch spies, and they're out there. Uh, unfortunately, the ones we have caught it caught, I'm convinced, are just uh, the tip of the iceberg. We're not catching them all. Uh, the challenge for future counterintelligence officers is great. But what more important work could you do for our country than to devote yourself to uh, neutralizing these uh, these Americans who are betraying our country? And when you get one, when you get one, Sherman, as I had the 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 great satisfaction of doing in, in numerous cases, um, there's no better feeling in the entire world. Yeah. To take a to take a Rick Ames out of action, you know, to to arrest an Anna Montez, to uh, arrest a Clyde Conrad, boy, it makes all that hard work worthwhile. Jim, I'd like to ask you before we get to your book. I'd like to ask you about your time overall at the Bush School, which is obviously where I did my master's degree, and it was. A phenomenal experience. The amount of knowledge and wisdom that I received from the professors, as well as my peers. Jim, what can you tell us about your time reflecting on your teaching career? Because you have not only taught so many students and graduates, but you have prepared countless people to enter the intelligence community, to be able to work every day. 24 7 365 for all these in, in for all these case officers never there's never a minute or a second where the cia is not working it all goes back to george herbert walker bush 41 the father when he decided to put his library and museum at texas a &M university in college station texas he also wanted to have a school of government there with his name on it and as you know President Bush had been the director of the CIA. He was a strong advocate of the intelligence community throughout his terms as vice president and president. He loves us, and we loved him also. When he set that school up, he wanted to make certain that intelligence was part of the curriculum of his new school of government. And so I had the, uh, the great honor of being asked to go down to begin to develop a an intelligence studies program at the Bush School. I remember going down and telling President Bush, Mr. President, I'm so honored that you would ask me to come down uh, to do this, and Meredith and I will be very happy to give you a two-year commitment. <laughs> and President Bush just looked at me and smiled and said, Jim, that'll be fine, because he knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew that once we got there, we would be hooked uh, by the mission of the school, the uh, mystique of Texas A&M, its patriotism, its honor, its tradition of service to country. Uh, and of course, that's exactly what happened. When we got down there, we realized that as a second career, nothing could match this. After my two years, the CI wanted me to go back and offered some very attractive positions. But by then, I realized that uh, the second career of working with young people like you and preparing them to come in behind Meredith and me 
as intelligence officers for our country was more rewarding than anything I could ever have imagined. So I found it very fulfilling, very exciting. Uh, and we built the program over time. It was kind of rough going at the beginning. I was by myself for several years. But the interest from the students was uh, the driving force for expanding it. So little by little, I was able to acquire additional faculty and to build a broader program than what I could offer by myself. So today we have uh, added people who, like me, have CIA background, but also FBI people, military intelligence people, NSA people, uh, DHS people, people from across the community. And President Bush wanted that from the beginning. And it's a distinctive feature, as you know, of the, the Bush School program in that we are practitioner-based. We love our academic colleagues, and they're important. But uh, to teach intelligence, we thought it was important to have people teaching it who actually had done it. You know, we're teaching things that we know firsthand are vital to you. So we made a point of ensuring that our students receive the skills and the knowledge that they could apply immediately on the job. So you'll recall, we take you out on the street. We do dead drop operations. We do surveillance operations, counterterrorism operations. We make it as real as possible. And it's music to my ears, of course, uh, Sherman, when CIA recruiters come down to the Bush School to meet with my students. They tell us, Jim, we have never seen better prepared new employees than the ones coming out of the Bush School because they're good to go. Uh, they know how to do it because they've done it in your program. Uh, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. And it's heartening to see the interest from such high-quality young people from all around the country, men and women who feel called to serve and who want to do it in the intelligence community. So they are flocking to the Bush School. And uh, we, as you said, have been very successful. Uh, we have a a remarkable placement record. You know, we can't give numbers because many of the students that we graduate are sent out under uh, undercover. Um, but it is a sizable number of um, Bush School graduates who are out there right now on the front lines serving our country in, in dangerous and difficult places. Uh, that's exactly what President Bush wanted when he asked us to start this program. And uh, I know before he passed away, that he was uh, very pleased with how successful we were carrying out his vision of, of the Bush School. I love it. I can't imagine going anywhere else. Uh, those two years turned into 25. <laughs> and, uh, we're still going strong. And uh, we graduated our last crop in May, and many of them are already reporting uh, for training or for actual active duty across the intelligence spectrum. You know, not just the CIA, which is uh, richly represented, but uh, throughout the community as well. President Bush famously said, and this is a quote that we all as Bush graduates and Bush uh, alumni, Bush family, uh, and Bush community all reflect on, which is public service is a noble calling. And Jim, everything that you've described is why I revere President Bush, his legacy, and this Bush School uh, so strongly because there is no other institution like it. And 
I just have to say it's because of public servants and people like yourself, Jim, who continue to serve, even if it's not the same exact capacity, you serve because you understand the importance of bringing in that new generation of public servants. And I, I just want to take this moment to really thank once again all the faculty, the staff, and the people who, who serve the students at the Bush School every single day because it really is a, a strong American institution. And I want to see this school uh, continue to succeed and build on its own successes and and no doubt that those successes, while they might not be counted in the numbers as you mentioned, Jim, but we will see that when we when we see that we thwart a threat, we stop a Russian spy, we prevent the uh, prevent a united front worker from trying to from trying to infiltrate in one of our companies or just so many other successes that we might not read about, but they're there. And that's, and that's super, super incredibly important for us to, to remember as we, we honor our professionals as we, as one of, which is also one of your, one of your commandments, which is one of my favorite ones, honoring those who may not, may not have, you know, the, whom I may not have seen since graduation, but who are out there, doing what they love and doing what they believe is, is important. Well, thank you for saying that, Sherman. Uh, you know what you're talking about because you were there and you realized what our ethic is, what our purpose is. And we're very proud of you, Sherman. Uh, you represent us uh, very well as a distinguished graduate. Thank you. If there are young people listening, I would urge you, if you feel that call, if you would like to serve our country in some meaningful way out in the front lines in the intelligence community, please look at our website or contact one of us. We'll be glad to talk to you about our program and what we have to offer and the kinds of careers that uh, you can anticipate if you complete our program. We are bringing in about 90 new students every year, and uh, it's a two-year program, so we have about 180 students in residence. Not all of them are going to be in the intelligence concentration. There are other ways to serve, but our number one concentration by far is intelligence. And if you have a mind to find a good graduate program that will prepare you for a successful career in intelligence, I don't think you could find a, a better place than, than the Bush School. I would add, as you know, Sherman, we also now have a teaching site in Washington, D.C., where we have the same degree programs. And so you can actually uh, obtain our degree, the Bush School degree, in intelligence studies uh, up in Washington, D.C., uh, as well as uh, in College Station, Texas, it is remarkable, and I can't imagine. I can imagine the students now at the Washington D.C. site being able to point yonder over right where Langley is. It's a, Langley's a lot closer <laughs> now to 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 that site. Yeah, I envy I envy my colleagues up there because uh, we do a good job of bringing people in for conferences and for guest lectures, but. Sitting up in Washington, D.C., it is so adjunct rich. It is so guest speaker rich. You can reach across to Langley. You can reach across the Pentagon. You go over to DIA. You go to the FBI and bring people into the classroom that uh, you know, would be hard for us to match sitting down here in Texas. We do a good job of it. 
but it is uh, something that is really, I think, uh, a hallmark of our program of their, the kind of people we are able to bring in to the classroom. Again, in the same philosophy of we want to teach our students from a practitioner-based, real-world, pragmatic, hands-on uh, point of view. Now, Jim, I, one final question before we get to our reflection, which is obviously about your two books. And these two books, one is called Fair Play. The other is called To Catch a Spy, which is your newest book. Give us a preview. Obviously, I would love for people to read this, but give us a preview of your two books and how they relate to your experiences working for the CIA and just in general, why maybe tie it back into why it matters for the American people. We tie it back into Washington's farewell address, but I believe a lot of, if not everything of what we've spoken about today has so much relevance with the American citizenry. When I was on active duty, I was struck by the fact that we were not having debate inside the clandestine service about the morality of what we were doing. And our world is fraught with ethical and moral dilemmas. We took them for granted. We were prepared to do whatever we needed in the service of our country. So we, as a part of our profession, accepted the fact that we're going to lie, we're going to cheat, we're going to steal, we're going to manipulate. In some cases, we're going to curse. We're going to do some other things that border on nasty. We believe we're doing it for a greater good. But particularly in the uh, new age of terrorism after 9-11, I felt that we needed to have a greater public awareness of who we are in the clandestine service, who we are in the intelligence community, and what it is that we do. Because American people don't know. Uh, they have no idea in most cases what our work consists of. And I didn't think that was a good thing because I believe in, a, in an open democratic society. I believe that our people have a right to know to the extent that we don't violate any tradecraft secrets or put people's lives in jeopardy. What it is that we're doing? We, as intelligence officers, are doing it for you. We're doing it for the American people. And we think the American people should have a voice in how we carry out our job, particularly in fighting terrorism. What do you think about waterboarding? What do you think about kidnapping or renditions? What do you think about targeted killings? What do you think about seduction? What do you think about manipulation in general? And I wanted to kind of promote that debate because we in the intelligence community should not be making our, those calls ourselves. We're too close. We're too prone to overzealousness. We're not elected. And so we need people who are elected, who represent the American people, to tell us how far we can go, where the moral and ethical lines are. You want us to waterboard or not? Tell us, and we will act accordingly. But too often, our elected leaders are not willing to do that because they don't want to have their name on any bill, any document that could be used by a political opponent later on to charge them with promoting unethical, immoral uh, behavior. 
So what they were doing in too many cases was simply sending us CIA out there, for example. And I was on active duty during those years. And it worked like this. Okay, you CIA, you go out there. You penetrate terrorist groups. You thwart future attacks against Americans. You protect the American people. If you don't, then we're going to declare an intelligence failure. And we're going to hold you responsible. But oh, by the way, we're not going to tell you what the limits are. We're not going to tell you how far you can go. But sitting in Washington after the fact, we reserve the right to decide that you went too far. That you did things in the line of duty that we now believe were unethical, immoral, even criminal. And we're going to hold you responsible. That is fundamentally unfair. I have colleagues in the CIA who were put on notice by the Department of Justice that they were subjects of prosecution for things they did in the line of duty, for which we thought we had legal authorities by a previous administration, but the views changed and now people are going to be held responsible. And I actually heard lawyers on that side of the argument say, the things that you did you may have thought were legal, but that's no defense from carrying out something that was in fact illegal. So I wanted to encourage that discussion. I wanted to acquaint the people, what's really going on out there? And sure, I had no trouble coming up with 50 situations that raise moral dilemmas in our world because it's a murky world. Uh, there are a lot of things going on out there that aren't pretty and we were engaged in them. And some of them, I believe, are totally justified. Some, I think we need to decide, can we go that far or not? So I want that book to be a wake-up call. I want the American people to get involved. And I want our policymakers to draw that line for us. Tell us how far we can go. Because if they don't, and that's too often the case now in certain areas, what's our reaction going to be as people out in the field? We're going to hang too far back to protect ourselves. And that's not the best way to prosecute the war on terror. It's not the best way to go after foreign intelligence services. We need to be up to that line. We need to be playing hardball. We need to be fighting tough. But if you don't tell us where the line is, we're not going to do that. So that was the purpose for that book. The CIA asked me to present all those scenarios, I call them, as fictional. And I'll leave it to the reader to decide whether they actually were or not. Okay. Uh, I'm dropping a hint there. <laughs> uh, the second book, To Catch a Spy, was something that I also thought a lot about in addition to the moral aspects of what we did. And that was the fact that uh, our counterintelligence was not up to the job. We need to improve how we were protecting our secrets, protecting our people and uh, preventing foreign intelligence services from stealing us blind, from stealing our secrets, from stealing our technology, getting into our elections and uh, wreaking havoc in the whole cyber world. Uh, so that's why I wrote that book. My purpose in writing that book was, first of all, to inform the reader about what's going on out there, because most people have no idea of how we are being attacked by multiple foreign intelligence services, foe as well as friend. And we need to tighten up our counterintelligence. We need to do a much better job. 
And my teaching philosophy is to use the case study method. So the readers will see that I'm trying to make those points about how we can improve our counterintelligence overall by looking at specific cases and different failings that we uh, experience in those cases, things that we can improve, how we can do a better job. And there's no better way to do that, in my opinion, to taking the reader through a series of actual operations and analyzing, dissecting them. How could we have done a better job here? Why did we make this mistake? How can we avoid that mistake in the future? So you, in the process, learn a great deal about how I believe counterintelligence uh, should be practiced by our country. I'm not holding myself out as any ultimate source on how to do counterintelligence, but the fact is I did it for many, many years. I think I learned some things, and I felt an obligation to share some of those thoughts uh, with, uh, with readers. So my audience is not only the public in general, but I would say also for practitioners of counterintelligence. And I'm gratified to know that the, that book is being used in a lot of training classes in counterintelligence in the FBI and the military all around the community, which was had been my hope. But I'm also addressing that book at young people, people who might be interested in joining us. We need reinforcements in the world of counterintelligence. I'm hoping that by learning more about counterintelligence that some young men and women out there will be inspired to to take up counterintelligence as a professional specialty. And the first step in doing that might well be to send in an application to the Bush School of Government and Public Service of Texas A&M University because we will train you. We will train you in counterintelligence. We will prepare you to enter that, uh, that very arcane world of uh, the wilderness of mirrors. Well, that's, a, that's an amazing, amazing preview of your books, Jim. And I, I remember getting those books and, um, and just reading through. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, Jim. There were, there were nights when I, when I was like, I'm going to read two or three chapters today because this is just, I was going to read one only, but the, the amount of detail that you go in into those case studies and the case studies really, really, I, I believe are, are so critical because you, when you think, remember a name, you think about all, you think about that case, you think about the storyline, you think about the, the lessons. I, re- I recall from your, your class when we looked at a case study, whether it was Jack Dunlap or, uh, or Rick Ames or, or other cases, we looked at the key, number one thing I've got at least was the lessons learned. If you didn't learn something from this, what's the point of telling a story? And I felt that that approach of getting those lessons learned, think about how we can apply that to our work, our workplace, whether it's at the CIA or FBI or wherever um, in national security, how, how can we improve um, the way we do things and not, not just let things keep going because they've been doing, they've been done for so many years. And I just want to, I just want to really acknowledge acknowledge your way of teaching Jim because it really helped me a lot on the practicality side of bringing it back and that's what this podcast is about is about making Washington's farewell address applicable um, as a as not just as a historical document but as a fa- as part of the fabric of what America is today and Jim I want to uh, as as before I well actually before I get to that I definitely will link You'll see for the audience the links down the show notes below to uh, purchase 
uh, Jim's books. They are fantastic. They are a fantastic read for anyone who is interested in our national security or being part of this too. And Jim, I want to now tie this into Washington's farewell address and the the six principles I I so frequently cite and are the pillars of this podcast. Out of the six, which one or which ones do you believe are most relevant to our conversation today and really to the larger picture of counterintelligence in the United States? Well, I think they're all relevant. I believe that national unity is so critical now, Sherman, and we don't have it. And it's heartbreaking for those of us who love this country to see the acrimony in the the public debate. Uh, There were politics in Washington's period also. Adams and Jefferson probably down deep hated each other. Um, And it got really nasty. But when the fate of the nation was on the line, people came together. I regret that I'm not seeing that today. I regret that what I'm seeing is division and dislike of the other side, not just a dislike of their policies, but personal dislike of people who differ from them in their ideology their outlook on uh, how our country should be run. I believe that that's the greatest lesson that we can take from from George Washington because he united the country. And I believe that unity is a function of leadership. And if we have the right kind of leadership, we can appeal to the best in everybody, both parties, all ideologies, to work toward the good of our country. Uh, Washington understood that. He preached that. And that was the number one takeaway that, uh, that I take from Washington's farewell address. Civility, of course, he pointed to also, and that ties in to the, the lack of unity, the ugliness of the debate that's going on in the country now. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. Uh, I've followed politics for many, many years. I've never known it to be as bitter and as personal and as visceral as it is now. Uh, That's got to change. Washington would be shocked if he saw how we were maligning the motives and the the integrity of our political opponents today. Uh, That is very un-Washingtonian. Washington was a stickler for fiscal responsibility. I remember looking at some of his accountings for his intelligence operations, and it was minute down to the smallest expenditures. He believed in honoring the integrity of the public purse. Uh, We don't have that now. I think we have some recklessness in our spending. Uh, The appropriations are, I believe, in many cases, undermining our financial security, our economy. Uh, I think Washington would be appalled. Uh, Even the concept of a deficit, a huge deficit, uh, he would be uh, very much against. Uh, What else? Washington, of course, was a strong proponent of education. And uh, I believe that our educational system has failed us. Uh, in recent years, and we need a 
a resetting of our educational priorities. Uh, I think education has kind of lost its way and that the core elements of preparing men and women for honorable lives and, and service to the country uh, has been, many places been overtaken by, by secondary uh, social considerations. I don't like that. I'm not going to get too political on that, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I look back on my own education many, many years ago, and it was the fundamentals. It was the hardcore academic subjects. Uh, we didn't have time for a lot of these things that uh, are part of the curriculum today. Uh, I am a man of faith, and uh, I believe that our country was based on faith. And I want to actually say that uh, there is a place for faith in our, our public persona. And I'm not at all averse to seeing people recognize the fact that we are a country that was based on a, a strong faith in God and that he is our protector. Uh, people are reluctant to say that, and we undermine that over and over again under some false, I believe, concepts of separation of church and state. But uh, a return to more faith in our society would be a good thing, I believe. Uh, patriotism, I know was one of the six principles, if I remember correctly. And, uh, you know, what can I say about patriotism, except that um, it guided my life. Uh, it uh, was what George Bush personified, uh, love of country, service to country. And uh, I hate to see young people particularly uh, criticizing our country, its heritage, its values, its history, uh, because quite often that's ignorant. And there are so many things to take pride in about our country, to respect our country for. Uh, I've been doing a lot of research lately on the Second World War, and the Second World War really congealed all of these principles that George Washington represented of patriotism, of civility, of fiscal responsibility, of unity. Uh, the country was so beautifully unified. And when we could do the impossible. Uh, look how we picked ourselves up off the floor after Pearl Harbor. And what, six months later, we were defeating the Japanese Navy uh, in the Battle of Midway. I mean, that's amazing accomplishment in our industrial center. Our, our young people step forward, our leaders step forward, our Congress step forward. Uh, I would like to see a return to some of those same values that we saw back then. So, uh, but again, uh, all of those values can be attributed to the man, to George Washington, what was in his heart what was in his mind, what his values were. Uh, and those values ring just as true today as they ever did in his time. Uh, so I commend you, Sherman, for reminding everybody that that Washington Farewell Address is out there. And it, we talked about teaching points, lessons learned, 
boy, how could you have better teaching points than by uh, looking at that, that address? So keep up the good work. Uh, spread it to as many people as you can. Uh, I love what you're doing. Thank you for that. Well, thank you so much, Jim, for your amazingly kind words. And I am just so grateful to not only have, have learned from you at the Bush School, but and obviously for your very, very amazing time and uh, your stories and your lessons that you share with myself and the audience today, I'm perhaps most grateful that you have dedicated your entire life to public service and to teach people like myself those lessons from your career and and your and from the just the blood, sweat, and tears. Literally, I mean, with with the, the stories, the case studies that we've we've spoken about in class and in, and on this episode, literally blood, sweat, and tears of countless men and women who, whether World War II or during the Cold War or during the War on Terror, who who dedicate so much of their time and energy to defending this nation, and I. I'm so grateful every day to be a Bush School alumnus. I think about those words that President Bush uh, Bush said: "Public service is noble calling." I remember that that amazing that opportunity to pay my respects to President Bush when that Union Pacific 4141 pulls into College Station, and you see the. 41st president of the United States come back to Aggieland, come back to College Station and to see the family being there, to see the students and the faculty there. It's, it's a scene that I will never forget. I will never forget those times at the Bush school when I got to learn from amazing people like yourself, Jim. I, I, I can't, I can't really put into words just how much of an impact you have had on these men and women who are working every single day to serve for our nation. And it's, it, it takes, I think it takes a unique character. It takes someone who knows how to not only live out those experiences, but be able to transfer those to that next generation. It takes, it's a, it's a very special skill. And um, I just, I cannot thank you enough for the amazing time that you've given myself and the podcast and to be, I will, I can assure you and obviously to my audience that we will continue. Um, and I want to also say that I, that to up to this point, we've had discussions about China and all that. We have never had an intelligence professional uh, like yourself on this program. I want to change that by getting more people from different branches of the IC, from people who have worked maybe in the private sector, people who have been part of this giant mission um, to come onto the program to be able to share their experiences. Because I truly believe that there is no other, there's no way you can describe George Washington without talking about intelligence. Because he, from that time when he was being beaten by the British on all fronts, it seemed like probably there's no end at the end to sight. Uh, the battle of Long Island and all those battles in New York. New York was just a, a, a terrible, terrible place for, um, for for the Americans at that time. But I think he set that that precedent for for greatness in our intelligence profession. And I believe that 
because of the work that you've done and the legacy that President Bush made on the Bush School and on the and on the future uh, on the current and future intelligence professionals, this I believe would have been something that Washington would have would, would have loved. He 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 most certainly would have traveled, and he would have. Thanks for modern technology, of course, but to be able to travel from Virginia to College Station, I'll bet that he would have come without hesitation. And so, Jim, I, I want to thank you again so much for your time today. And I'd like to just leave some time for you to to leave any closing remarks before we, we end the, the, the episode. Oh, thank you for your kind words, uh, Sherman. Yes, I am a strong believer in public service. It is indescribably rewarding to dedicate your life to something you truly believe in, something you truly love. I'd like to make uh, just a final comment to your young listeners who may feel a call to serve themselves. Young people who are what I call infected, who have that bug to serve, And I would like to say to you, if you are infected, if you feel that call to serve, don't ignore it. It will never go away. It's terminal. And if you end up doing something in your life where you're not serving something you truly believe in, like our country, there are other things to serve also that are very worthy. That bug will nag at you. That bug will say, this is not where you're supposed to be. You were called to serve. You were called to make a difference. You were called to sacrifice for what you believe in. And if you do that, you will never regret it. Because a life of service is something that, as George Bush said to our students, will give nobility to your life. So it will give elegance to your life. It will give meaning and purpose to your life. I think back on my career now as a blessing that I had the honor, the privilege of serving our country, first of all, as an intelligence officer, but maybe even more meaningfully now, Sherman. And I can tell you this because you were there and you saw what we were doing at the Bush School. As a teacher, as a mentor, I've told Meredith several times that I believe that, first of all, I truly loved what we did in the CIA. We made a difference. But what we're doing at the Bush School at Texas A&M, working with your generation, working with the next generations, and preparing them to live their dreams of serving our country, is probably even more important in the long run. A greater contribution to the well-being of our country. And I don't want to ever step away from that. So I always want to stay engaged as long as I'm able with working with young people, hopefully teaching them, hopefully inspiring them, guiding them toward realizing their goals of service. When we interview applicants for the Bush School. And you will recall this. Those interviews are probably unforgettable. We are sizing you up. We are looking for what's in your heart. And if you don't convince us in your application materials and in the interview that you truly are called 
that you truly are infected. If your primary motivation in life is money and power and prestige and status and recognition, we wish you good luck somewhere else because that's not us. We're looking for those people who are not motivated by those things, that are motivated by the idea of a life of service, and in most cases, service to our country. It is a fine and honorable thing uh, to do that. And I'm just so blessed that I had the opportunity to do that. But I, I, I believe my second career is even more of a contribution to our country than my first career was. Although the first career, I did some things also I'm pretty proud of. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. I, I, I wish all your listeners uh, good luck, and I, I hope they take seriously some of the messages that we were able to discuss today under your direction and leadership. Thank you for that. Thank you all so much for listening to this conversation and episode with Jim Olson. I am very, very pleased that he was able to spend so much time with us and to be able to share some incredible insight into the world of counterintelligence. Again, make sure to subscribe to Friends of Fellow Citizens if you haven't already. Check out the two books that Mr. Olson has written down in the show notes below. Be sure to check out for our solo episode next week, where we have a bit of a special episode to commemorate our two-year anniversary. Enjoy the rest of the Labor Day weekend. Enjoy the rest of the week. And remember, a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.